Uh, what we're going to be looking at over this little section today, in, in many ways, is the outworking of some of the things that we saw in the parables. Uh, what you uh, discover when you hear Jesus speak of the different soils uh, and the seed landing on different soils is a variety of responses to Jesus. Uh, we'll see that today and we'll see that next week when we look at uh, the different types of situations Jesus finds himself in and how people respond to that. But there's two quite striking responses today. But before we get into the passage, I want to get us thinking a little bit about the nature of literature. Uh, literature comes in a variety of forms, doesn't it? So we all know that when we're reading the front page of a newspaper, it's different to when we're reading the back page of the newspaper. We know that when we open up a cryptic crossword, we have to read it slightly differently to when we're reading the weather. And for those who would read astrology charts in the paper, it's a little bit different to an editorial or political commentary. We are familiar with there being different genres of writing. And that's true, and it's important when it comes to reading the scriptures as well. I want to give you an example of some different genres of writing. Uh, see if you can understand what's being said here. It, it might be very obvious to some of you and a little foreign to others. Let me read it from, uh, from uh, the paper today. Paolo was sin-binned for a tip tackle on Tom Burgess, swiftly followed by a head injury as Farmanu Brown was laid out cold after a Tommy Mackinson charge. Make sense? Some people shaking their heads. Oh, I think it's reasonably... Um, oh, Kind of understandable so far. England opened their account after halfback George Williams stepped inside a couple of defenders and offloaded to Elliot Whitehead for a simple try. Mackinson converted. Ligi Sow restored the Samoan lead, spotting Watkins on his heels and immediately attacking the blind side. The whole prop allied his quick thinking with strength as he rode Dom Young's challenge and took the winger with him as he slid across the line for a try. Crichton converted to Han Samoa a 10-6 half-time lead. Now, we know what we're dealing with, right? You're dealing with a sports report. There's certain terminology that's specific to this type of sport and the way that this has been written, but we wouldn't turn this into something that it's not, like a political commentary, for example. Let me read you this one. An Iranian man, this is again from today, who lived 18 years in Paris's Charles de Gaulle airport and inspired the 2004 Steven Spielberg film, The Terminal, died on Saturday in the airport, officials said. Mohan Karimi Nasseri died after a heart attack in the airport's terminal, 2F, around midday, According, an official, sorry, according to an official with the Paris Airport Authority. Police and a medical team treated him but were not able to save him, the official said. Karimi Nasseri, believed to have been born in 1945, lived in the airport's Terminal 1 from 1988 to 2006. First in legal limbo because he lacked residency papers, and later by choice, according to French media reports. He had been living in the airport again in recent weeks, the airport official said. What we're dealing with again, it's, it's kind of historical, it's a matter of fact, it's kind of strange, 
It's unusual, it doesn't happen every day, but we know to expect that this is a news report. That's the nature of the writing. Let me read you something else. If I can turn to the right page. Here we go. He couldn't move a muscle. Petrified, he watched as Quirrell reached up and began to unwrap his turban. What was going on? The turban fell away. Quirrell's head looked strangely small without it. Then he turned slowly on the spot. Harry would have screamed, but he couldn't make a sound. Where there should have been a back to Quirrell's head, there was a face. The most terrible face that Harry had ever seen. It was chalk white, with glaring red eyes and slits for nostrils, like a snake. Harry Potter, it whispered. Harry tried to take a step backwards, but his legs wouldn't move. See what I've become, the face said, mere shadow and vapour. I have form only when I can share another's body, but there have always been those willing to let me into their hearts and minds. Unicorn blood has strengthened me these past weeks. You saw faithful Quirrell drinking it for me in the forest, and once I have the elixir of life, I will be able to create a body of my own. Now, why don't you give me that stone in your pocket? Now, what are we reading? Harry Potter, the Philosopher's Stone. We know instinctively, or maybe not instinctively, that what we're dealing with is fantasy. It's fiction, it's a gripping story, and it has captivated the minds and hearts of so many people. But what is it that makes the first stuff that we heard different to that account in Harry Potter? How do we work out what we're dealing with more significantly when it comes to the scriptures that are in front of us? Let me give you another account. Once upon a time, there was a green ogre who was married to a beautiful princess called Fiona. <laughs> that's true. You haven't seen me, have you? After midnight. Now, here's another one. Three mummies came out of their tombs in the pyramid. Their dressings were falling by the side. They got onto camels, made their way into Cairo, and joined with the other members of the COP27 to discuss climate change. <laughs> That's a little unusual, isn't it? Because it starts off, we feel like we know what we're dealing with. It's obviously fiction. But then it finishes in a way that it's contemporary, it's historical. Like, what do we make of it? Well, when you're reading the Gospels, you have stuff that is instinctively historical. Jesus went here, he ate there, he stood on a boat, he crossed to the other side, he gathered his followers, he stood and he spoke to them, he sat and he mixed with people, eating and drinking. But then in the next breath, you read that he touched a hand that was withered and it was healed. You read that he was able to walk upon the water. Or that, and we'll see this next week, out of a little boy's lunchbox with five loaves and two fish, 
he's able to feed 5,000 plus women and children. You see, it's a difficult thing, isn't it, to come to the Gospels and know what it is that you're dealing with. Does this belong in the historical stuff or in the fantasy stuff? Well, what we will explore as we look at this today is the confusion of categories. But there are strong and important historical connections with this passage. You might not realise this, but when it comes to ancient history, every reputable historical department in a university throughout the world recognises the New Testament accounts to be important historical documents. The four Gospels are actually considered four witnesses to things that took place, four different writers, four different perspectives, each speaking about some common events and introducing some different ones. But they aren't the only sources that we have. There are also Jewish sources and Greek sources. One of the Jewish sources is a guy named Josephus, who wrote a history of the Jewish people. And he writes of events that take place in our passage. And I just want to read you a little extract from his book, The Antiquities of the Jews. And uh, this is chapter 5 and section 1. Don't worry too much about this. But just listen uh, to what he writes. About this time, Aratas, the king of Arabia, Petraea, and Herod had a quarrel on the account following. Herod the Tetrarch had married the daughter of Aratas and had lived with her a great while. But when he was once at Rome, he lodged with Herod, who was his brother indeed, but not by the same mother. For his Herod was the son of the high priest Simon's daughter. However, he fell in love with Herodias, this last Herod's wife, who was the daughter of Aristobulus, their brother, and the sister of Agrippa the Great. Now, this is not in the Bible. This is in an ancient historical work by a Jewish scholar. He goes on to say this uh, in the next section. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John that was called the Baptist for Herod slew him who was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God and so to come to baptism for their washing with water. So Josephus is speaking about Herod, Herod's wife Herodias. Uh, you get different names. The New Testament speaks of the other Herod's name being Philip. And then you get the account of John the Baptist and the death of John the Baptist. And you can know all that without opening the Bible. And so when you look at that and you compare it with this, it seems fairly clear that we're dealing with history. We're dealing with accounts that can be verified and measured up against what we know from other places outside the scriptures but then you read these extraordinary things in the midst of it. For what are we to make of these things? Well, what we have going on here, I think, is kind of more than meets the eye. Uh, we'll see this a few times over the next few weeks as Jesus engages with people. 
But there are two accounts that I want us to look at here now. And I think they show us a mixture of the mundane and the miraculous. We see that Jesus is doing normal things, but in the midst of recounting normal things, it records miraculous things. Okay, so what are these Bible passages about? That was a long introduction. Well, let's just recap. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his name Mary? And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. Um, notice their reaction initially to Jesus. They are amazed at this man. The initial reaction, it's extraordinary. He's doing miraculous things. The reports are out. Everybody knows it. Nobody's disputing that he's doing these things. The question is, how does he do it? By what authority does he do it? And these challenges will keep coming. But as they're amazed about this, they then start to apply their minds and think a little more closely. We know this guy, don't we? I mean, wasn't his dad Joseph? Didn't he grow up in the carpenter's household? Isn't he Mary's boy? Don't we know his brother and his sisters? You see, as they start to apply their minds to these things, the, the extraordinary, what they're amazed at, becomes mundane. In fact, it becomes offensive to them. The word for offensive, it's, it's probably one of my favourite Greek words. It's the word scandalizo from which we get scandal. They see this as a scandal. They take offence at this guy. He's, he's doing these things, but no, nah, there must be something behind it. There, there's got to be smoke and mirrors because this is just the guy that we grew up with. And friends, I think you get this response to Jesus today, don't you? People might be fascinated initially and they'll explore these things, but then they think, no, look, if he was real, if, it, if you keep him in the realm of ideas, you can talk about a Jesus who is God, you can talk about a Jesus who does miracles, you can speak about a Jesus who died and has risen from the dead, you can cope with Christmas, you can cope with Easter, but when you start to put him into history, no, people don't do that sort of stuff. So if we want to look historically at Jesus, we've got to realise that dead people don't rise and the people don't raise other people from the dead. So that can't be true. I think it's the same problem sometimes that people have when they look at the Bible. And, and we like to say that the Bible, because the Bible says this of itself, is a book that has come from God. But then it's written by human authors. So it can't really be supernatural if it's written by people like John and Matthew and, and Mark and Paul and Peter and so on. It, it just doesn't seem like you can hold these things together. Or the church. See, when you talk about the divine, you talk about love, you talk about peace, 
You talk about people being saved. You talk about heaven. You talk about relationships with God. And then you see how ugly the church is. And people take offence. Well, there is a mental rejection of Jesus. But we also see another rejection of the kingdom, this time focused on John. Let's look at the next account. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now at this point, Herod's conscience has obviously been pricked. Um, and we are told why, because Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. You see, John had been making himself unpopular by critiquing the ruler of the Jewish people's moral behaviour. Um, Divorce took place and, and God permitted divorce. We can read of that in Malachi. But not to then go on and marry the half-brother of that person that was not permitted. You see, Herod had a moral problem. He, he fell into lust with his half-brother's wife. And his lust, it seems, gets him into more trouble. Because as we read on, on... Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. I, we're not told anything much about the dance, but it clearly provoked a reaction from Herod. Maybe some kind of exotic sexual dance. It pleased him. The guests are there. They're drinking, they're enjoying the feast, they're looking at what's going on, they're enjoying the dance. And Herod's obviously feeling pretty full of himself and pretty good. And what does he do? Well, he promised with an oath to give Herodias' daughter whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and took his body and burned it. Buried it, sorry. And then they went and told Jesus. It's a grotesque story, really, isn't it? Um, but if you read anything about the Caesars and the rulers in the ancient world, it's pretty common, this kind of behaviour. In fact, people have said that uh, one of the most threatened species was to be a relative of the Caesars because you didn't live very long because of the paranoia and the threat and people taking the lives of those close to them who might pose a threat. Well, here it's John the Baptist who's killed. And what we see really amounts to a moral rejection of the kingdom. John the Baptist came preaching a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People came out to him from the countryside 
Clearly, at this point, he also goes to the city and he speaks not just to the religious leaders but also to the political leaders. And Herod takes offence and has him thrown into prison. And so things then go from bad to worse. He compiles one error on top of another. He's weak, fundamentally. He makes an oath because he's keen on popularity. He could have broken the oath. I'm sure it's better to break an oath than to cut somebody's head off. But he doesn't. You see, when it comes to rejecting the kingdom, there can be an intellectual rejection. That is, I can't believe that this is God come in the flesh, is doing these things. But at its heart, the Bible tells us it's really a moral rejection. It's not just that we can't believe the facts. It's that we don't want the facts to impinge on our life. Herod didn't want to, to bow the knee to God. He didn't want to have his behaviour and his morals constrained by God. And so he takes the life of John the Baptist. But friends, I think there's even more going on here as well. Um, as we were first introduced to John the Baptist, uh, back early in Matthew's Gospel, we were told that he was the one who was coming to prepare the way for the Lord. He's the curtain raiser for Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist comes in fulfilment of the promises in Isaiah 40, but also fulfilling the promises in Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4, that before God comes amongst his people, he will prepare the way with a messenger who will be the Elijah to come. And you might remember, if you were with us back looking at Matthew chapter 3, that John the Baptist turns up in the wilderness. He's wearing a garment made of camel's hair with a leather belt and he's eating locusts and wild honey. He's very much an Elijah figure. And Jesus identifies John the Baptist with Elijah. And in identifying John the Baptist with the Elijah who was to come, what he's saying is that the promised arrival of God on the scene is imminent. John is the curtain raiser for the main event. You're travelling down the highway and you see a... Um, a four-wheel drive coming towards you, a ute with flashing lights, caution, wide load. It, it pays, uh, it actually it's a helpful thing to slow down and maybe move to the side, especially if they're delivering houses that are the full width of the road. That four-wheel drive with the flashing lights, it's the, it's the one that prepares the way for the real thing. That's John. But if John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come, who's paving the way for God to come amongst his people, and John the Baptist loses his head, literally, then what's going to happen to the one who comes after him? That's a question to ask. You see, when you look back at John the Baptist, there are a number of parallels to Elijah. Um, if you read back in 1 Kings, there was a wicked king, Ahaz, with a wicked wife, Jezebel, who tried to kill Elijah. Here you have a wicked king, Herod, a wicked queen, Herodias, 
who succeed in killing John the Baptist. Herod gives in to the will of his wife. Pontius Pilate will give in to the will of the people. You see, when you discover what happens to John the Baptist, there is an ominous sign about what's going to happen to Jesus. And that is because God's way of bringing in the kingdom is upside down. We think that it's through power and might and victory and armies. And God says, no, it's through weakness and humility and death. And that, again, is offensive for people. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. And people have turned their back on the good news about Jesus because it doesn't fit their expectations. So, friends, as you open a Bible, and I encourage you to do that, and as you read the accounts in the Gospels, I want you to ask the question, what is it that you're reading? What are you dealing with? What do you make of this historical man, Jesus? There is no reputable historian who would deny that Jesus lived and died. And it's testified inside and outside the Bible. But what do you make of his claims? And what do you make of his miracles? And what do you make of those who testify that he died on the cross and on the third day was raised from the dead? What do you make of the claims that Jesus continues to be alive today? And that you can have a relationship with the real Jesus now? It kind of confounds our understanding, doesn't it? It seems historical, but it seems miraculous. And that's the point. If we have a view that says history cannot include miraculous, then you rule it out without looking at the evidence. In a similar way to the English who got reports back from Australia hearing that the swans in Australia are black. And those back in England said, no, they're not. Swans are white. You need to look at the evidence. If you're checking this out for the first time, let me encourage you to read through these accounts of Jesus and just ask the question, what am I dealing with? Who is this man? What does he want from me? And friends, if you're talking with your friends, your family, your neighbours, your workmates, if you're exploring with them what you believe, maybe you'll need to help them to suspend disbelief so that they might read and take on board what it is that they're reading. That it's not Harry Potter, but it is God's word of history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll help us to relate to Jesus as he really is. Help us not to rule out things that we can't cope with, uh, to ignore things that are difficult, 
or to rationalise away things with modern explanations. We pray that you'll open our minds, open our hearts, so that we're willing to believe you and to trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.